Hello, welcome to Tales from the Albright, a podcast by the Scranton Public Library. Hello, we are here with another book discussion, and we are here with Brianna. Hello! So today we are reading Conan Doyle for the Defense by Margaret Fox. That's a unique name. It is a unique name. I hope I pronounced it right. If I didn't, I apologize. Yeah. The entire book is about the case of Oscar Slater who was an Eastern European Jewish immigrant to, well, he, was he technically an immigrant? Because he kind of just moved around a lot to different places. Yeah, he was, he was a more of a traveling person, which is interesting because they do make some commentary on the book on like stereotypes Mm -hmm. back then. So I think he fits that description sort of. So the entire incident takes place in Glasgow, Scotland. He was accused of murder. He was originally supposed to be hanged. Then that got commuted, so it was just life with hard labor. And then eventually he was released, and there was a trial that proved his innocence after 18 and a half years, I believe it was. Mm -hmm. And it was widely reported. I found newspaper articles from the Scranton Times. And there are quite a few books, but this is the one that we chose because we thought it was fun because Arthur Conan Doyle was involved. We like British mystery-esque <laughs> things in this uh, podcast. We're back on our trend. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> when I think of Arthur Conan Doyle, for whatever reason, I don't think of early 1900s. No, I think of, yeah, I think we're still in the 19th century. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But nope, 1908, the library had already been established here for a decent number of years. That's wild. Yeah. Just to make like the timeline connection. Yeah. (laughs) So the way I have my notes structured is going through the lead up to the murder, the basics of the case, the witnesses, his Oscar's arrest, the trial the aftermath, and then the cultural connotations that surrounded the entire trial. I felt that's how I made sense. The book kind of jumps around quite a bit. Yeah, it does that fun narrative storytelling way of uh, teasing at some things and going back and filling in some details as we meet characters. So it is fun, but it is helpful to, I think, break it down in this way. And um, this is just part one, so it's the first half of the book. I don't know how you found the book, but I found it where it was just there were so many facts... And they were all interesting. Yes. So my notes are just so long. <laughs> yes. That is, I think, totally understandable because there is so much rich detail here. Like everything from like the facts to like the letters he wrote to his family. Mm-hmm. It's just really great. The murder. Marion Gilchrist was murdered on December 21st of 1908 around 7 p.m. Her maid, Helen Lambie, left to go by the evening newspaper, locked the door, and she was gone for about 10 minutes. And during this 10 minutes is when the murder happened. Marion's apartment was fascinating to me. Yeah. <laughs> it goes yeah. into, like, minute detail. Mm-hmm. And they have pictures of it in here as well, which is really yes. cool. Yeah. So, Marion's apartment was on the second story of a building, and it had a ton of security features for the day. She had this whole doorbell system where you had to pull the doorbell a certain way, and then she would open the door from her apartment, and then she could see you coming up the stairs, and if she didn't like you or didn't want to talk to you, she could just close her door and completely lock it. And she had three locks on the door. They have a picture of her door, and it does have three very elaborate locks. In addition to three locks, there was a bolt and chain, too. Mm -hmm. 
She also kept her windows locked and she had a system worked out with her downstairs neighbors who were the Adamses. If something was going wrong, she would knock three times and they would come check it out. Most of this was because she had a large collection of jewelry and she was scared of people robbing her. So she kept some on her person at all times. She Mm -hmm. had it secreted away throughout her entire rooms. She had a whole system down. Yeah, she had it, like, stuffed into coats and, like, inside of layers of fabric and things. So, mm-hmm. yeah, she was, like, your master jewel. Jewel. I don't even know what to call that. Like, like concealing. Yeah, yeah. 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 So, in the days leading up to her murder, her Irish terrier fell ill and died. And she believed that the dog was purposely poisoned and thought that it was a warning that somebody was going to try to murder her. Which turned out to be what do you know? accurate. Mm-hmm. She was a psychic, too. And then there was a mysterious watcher who was a guy who was seen staring at her apartment at all hours of the day. And he was spotted in a variety of clothing by a bunch of different people. No one ever knew who he was mm-hmm. after or anything. When Marion was home alone... An unknown male, it could have been the watcher, it could not have been, no one's really sure to this day. They entered her apartment, beat her to death, and then took some papers and jewels, most notably a crescent-shaped diamond brooch. During the assault, she did knock on the floor, like the signal that she worked out with the Adamses, and Arthur Adams tried to go check on her, but... Couldn't really get the door open because of all of the locks and the pulley and the whole system. Mm-hmm. So Helen Lambie got back after her 10-minute journey to go buy the paper and was surprised to see Arthur there because he had never been upstairs before. She went into the apartment and discovered Marianne beaten and bloody, um, but somehow still alive, which unfortunately did not last long because mm-hmm. she did die. And her face had been completely crushed to the point where the author described the crime scene photos as her face looked as though it had never been a human. Which is horrifying. Yeah. That was the basics of the murder. And then I go into the witnesses. All right. So what were your thoughts about Helen? Helen, I mean, the problem is now I'm, I'm like deep enough in that I'm like, hmm, Helen's questionable. I don't know. Something about her I thought was particularly strange. I also found it very interesting that she's gone for quite literally 10 minutes when all of this happens. Mm-hmm. I don't know. What did you think of her? I feel like she had to know that yeah. something was happening because if you're gone for 10 minutes, that's not a random act. No. That's, it seems coordinated in a way to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because how else would they know to strike in just those 10 minutes? At that exact time. Yeah, because nothing summoned her back. It was just no. her naturally coming back anyway. So that's a very specific and it seems very purposeful and coordinated and not like a, what do they say, a crime of opportunity? Yeah. No, it's like a premeditated. Like even yeah. if it was the person who is the watcher too, mm-hmm. even if he knew the like routines and everything, there's no guarantees that you know exactly where a person is going. Yes. Mm-hmm. And to know that he would be able to bludgeon her like into silence and get jewels and get out in that time mm-hmm. frame is very like that's a very tight clock. Helen's statements about the night were that she went out for the paper and returned And she said she noticed a damp footprint on the bottom of the stairs, which 
they kind of get into how like that was never investigated but i almost see that like i wonder if it was just arthur adams if like his feet were wet that's a good point it could be my it makes me wonder how like this is where like the structure to the building makes a difference too because Mm -hmm. did they mean in the inside of the building entry like the stairs or outside because I don't that would get ever specified. Yeah, because that would make a difference. Mm-hmm. See, my brain, not to derail for a second, is instantly going like full Holmesian, partially because that's what we're doing in this mm-hmm. book, but also because we just decided to watch Elementary, which is Uh-oh. the American okay. retelling of Sherlock. And it's great because it's like getting me back into that mode of like mm-hmm. hyperanalyzing everything. And one of the things that he does that the original Sherlock Holmes does is like physically retraces a crime scene. Mm-hmm. So my instinct would be yeah, if you see the footprint, he should have like followed it seen where it started what size shoe is mm-hmm. it like that sort of thing that they don't seem to take any note of here. no not at all uh Lambie then says that a well-dressed man came towards her from the direction of miss gilchrist's spare bedroom after she had opened the door the man left the flat walked blithely past Lambie and adams and took the- to the stairs his clothing bore no traces of blood which doesn't make any sense no. if you're bludgeoning someone to death so that they're unrecognizable. No, it's, it's, it was a strange thing, too. Yeah. yeah. Before she discovered Marion in the spare bedroom, she immediately went to go check on the kitchen police because Arthur Adams had been like, we heard strange sounds. And she was like, oh, it's probably the police. So she immediately went there and then went to the spare bedroom where she found Marion. And then after, when they dispersed to go find the police and a doctor, she went to Margaret Beryl, who was Marion's niece, to tell her what had happened. And then next I have Arthur Adams. What did you think of him? I mean, the Adamses seemed pretty normal to me. Like, I didn't think anything of them. They felt like your stereotypical, like, the innocent witnesses Mm -hmm. to whatever has happened, particularly because, like, they they had, like, this, like, nice little arrangement to, like, look out for her because she's an older woman. So I didn't think anything suspicious of them. Did you? No. I felt like Arthur was very just honest and straightforward the entire time. Unlike some people in this situation. (laughs) Yeah. Because even when he was at the trial, he was like... It could be, like, I don't know. Like, and he was very, it seemed honest and open about everything. Yeah, he was much more, I think, reluctant to boldly state something that he didn't know for sure. Whereas other people were more likely to say, oh, the guy was wearing a bowler hat. And it's like, no, this other person said he was wearing no hat and he was bald. Like, Mm -hmm. all of these uh, discrepancies in their testimonies. His at least didn't have that to it. So Arthur's account stated that in addition to the established facts Uh, his sisters heard a thumb and then the three knocks on the floor above them so they sent him to go check it out and he heard what sounded like wood splintering and assumed it was Helen Lambie just breaking wood to use in the kitchen to cook or do laundry or whatever and then he returned home but his sisters told him the noises became so violent so he went back and that's when he met Lambie around 7.10. That's when he told Lambie that sounded all these noises, and she was like, oh, it's probably the pulley system. And he didn't think anything of the guy coming out of the apartment because Lambie really didn't react to him. 
He stayed outside of the apartment until she told him to come in. When he saw Marion, he ran out to try and find the intruder. So he did at least make an effort to run and chase. But Glasgow is a major city. Yes. So there's people all over. When he couldn't find him, he then went to the police and a doctor. So then we have Dr. John Adams. He was the first doctor on the scene. I don't remember anything clear about him. I don't even There's know. not much. He noticed that the dining room chair was drenched in blood. That's a good and note. the chair had like spindle-shaped legs, so it had those swirly patterns, and it matched the injuries on Marion. And he also noted that the chair could have possibly protected the attacker from blood spray because of the seat of the chair. Mm-hmm. That is an important fact. And is it, wasn't that the point that he nobody really asked him yeah. to, to talk about this? He wasn't in the trial. <laughs> yeah, nobody, nobody asked him to report on this? Yeah. yeah. The first police officer on the scene was John Piper and he's a detective inspector and he arrived around 7.55. So he said that Marion's glasses and a magazine were on the table. A half sovereign was on the rug. There was no blood outside of the dining room where her body was found. No sign of a struggle to get into the flat. So, like, it hadn't been broken in by force, which indicated that Marion knew the person. Um, He also noticed that a wooden workbox in the spare bedroom had been forced open, and its contents, which were mainly important papers, were just all over the place. In that room, whoever the attacker was had time to light the lights as well. Hmm. Because his matches were left behind. And he also... He was the one that noticed that there were jewelry, a watch, and various rings untouched. The diamond crescent-shaped brooch was gone, and it had a value of about 50 pounds. And then there's Mary Barrowman. What did you think of Mary? Was she... She was the 14-year-old. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. This is where I'm like, I feel like other than the Adamses, everyone else made me sort of wonder what their role mm-hmm. is because they all like they knew her so i i don't know and at the hard part about i will say about reading this mm-hmm. book which i loved because it made it more like a novel is that they do this fun teasing thing where they're like mm-hmm. but maybe it was someone that they recognized all along and so i'm like this whole time like when you ask about like helen lambie and them i'm like mm-hmm. hmm which of them could could they have been involved in this? The only people I didn't suspect at this point were the Adamses. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, did you have any particular inclinations with her? Um, not so much her. I just had a feeling from the start about Helen. Yeah, I feel like it just makes you wonder who, I would say was in on it, but like mm-hmm. who might have suspected that it was actually someone like she knew yeah. and not just this poor random foreign man that had no way of knowing her. Yeah. Yeah. Also, I... I should probably state kind of spoiler for the book. Yeah. No one knows who the murderer was. It's a complete mystery for all of time. Mm. There's theories, but no one knows. Or Mary told John Thompson Trench that she saw a man about 30 years of age, tall, slim, without any hair on his face, a fawn overcoat that was waterproof, dark pants, brown boots and a tweed cloth hat that seemed like a respectable person running away from the apartment. And then Dr. John Glaster was the one who did the autopsy on Gilchrist, and he did testing on the evidence that they took from Oscar Slater's 
bag. Mm-hmm. Um, he did testify in the trial, and it's very confusing why John Adams did not. But That's a good point. I wonder if it's because it would not look favorably the way they wanted it to. Probably. There's a lot of issues. Yeah, I know. Because isn't the problem that between Mary and Helen and all of those people, they all had very different descriptions of Mm -hmm. them, too. Like, they all said completely different things about what it looks like. And the problem with them is that they were very confident in those descriptions, (laughs) which makes it hard to uh, hone in there. They're very confident about completely different descriptions. Yeah, because at first the police thought there were, like, multiple people. Yes, yes. So no one really agreed. So Oscar Slater. His real name was Oscar Josef Leishner. He was born January 8th of 1872 and changed his name to Slater when he visited England because in the very stereotypical early 1900 English way. Yeah. No one wanted to learn how to pronounce his last name, so he just changed it. He was a Jewish-German man who spent some time in Glasgow and married Mary Curtis Pryor before deserting her because she was an alcoholic who wanted his money. (laughs) And Slater then continued to travel um, to avoid his wife. The aliases included Oscar Slater, so that played into it, too. So. He was kind of... But this wasn't that uncommon back then. Right. So he was actually in love and spent the majority of his life with Andre Junio Antoine, who was believed to be a prostitute, but they were together all the time. He was said to be hot-headed and a bit volatile, but he wasn't violent. And he would often send money back to his parents in Germany to help take care of them since his father had a disability with his spine and his mother was partly blind, so they couldn't really work. He was known as a gambler. He occasionally did work in the jewelry trade, and he was very concerned about his reputation. So he tried to keep everything level. It said that he had been arrested like twice before. Once for what seemed to be just like sort of a fight, and then another mm-hmm. time, I forget what the other one was, but um, he would just like pay the fines and go about his day. Yeah, I think it was like um, like gambling or solicitation yeah. or something along those lines. Yeah, I think the problem is that it the defamation of his character played such a big part in mm-hmm. this. The way that they like portrayed him to be a pimp and like all of these things um, because he was foreign and tried to make his way in the world in a way that people didn't understand or approve of at the time. Yeah. yeah. And that connects to murderer in some uh, people's brains. Yeah. Yeah. And so then Oscar Slater, at the time of the crime, he was preparing to leave Glasgow to go to San Francisco because his friend John DeVoto had wrote to him and was like, come visit. So he was making his rounds, doing, like, buying boat tickets and found somebody to take over his flat and got his shaving things from the barber, mailed some money to his parents and pawned items to try to raise funds for the trip. And on December 26th, he checked into the Northwestern Hotel with Antoine and bought two tickets on the Lusitania to New York, which I was very surprised. Uh, I know, right? I was like, wait a second, doesn't that sink? And then I was like, that's later. Yeah, it's a later problem. As you were talking about how the Victorian society at the time didn't like how 
he was a gambler and suspected pimp and this society was very anti-semitic and he was a foreigner so the victorians didn't care for him so it seemed like they kind of just used him as a scapegoat for the entire murder yes very much so and on page 23 there's a quote from arthur conan doyle Having once got what they imagined to be their man, they are not very open to any line of investigation which might lead to other conclusions about the police investigating the case. Scottish anti-Semitism became a major player in the entire case because as on page 30, it states the case centered on two foundation stones of anti-Semitic belief, blood and money. It also touched upon the issue that for the British bourgeoisie was a raw nerve, the supposed involvement of many new Jewish immigrants in criminal pursuits, particularly the scandalous vices of prostitution and pimping, which I will say did seem the prostitution pimping accusations throughout the entire thing are never really shown to be like founded in anything. It's just like, yeah, they're like, that's what they did. And that's about it. So the whole brooch situation, what was your thoughts on that? I, I thought it speaks a lot to what you just talked about too, which is that whole, once you, once they thought they found someone, so they had this idea the brooch was the first thing mm-hmm. that pinned him him to the crime because they found out that he had pawned this brooch. But it was one of those situations where it turned out he had pawned the brooch, I believe, before he even could have acquired her brooch. Yes. Yeah. So it like the timeline doesn't even line up. Yeah. And yet still despite that they were going to persevere because to them this idea of um like it was a mix of that like the idea of theft and Mm -hmm. the idea of the money that the brooch was worth and the fact that even though it didn't quite line up it somehow had a had a connection there it really spoke to that like what what they talk about in the book a lot is like that paranoia Mm -hmm. so this is like a, a very deep paranoia on the part of the police that they felt the need to stick with the clue even when it was no longer a clue. Yeah, that drove me a little crazy. Yeah. Once they, like, knew it wasn't, and they were still like, but still, let's find other details. Yeah. So the entire brooch lead clue, on December 25th of 1908, Alan McLean called the police and told them that Oscar had been trying to sell a pawn ticket for a diamond crescent brooch. And police were like, oh, must be the one that was taken from the crime scene. So they went to Oscar's house and his maid was like, they left, they're no longer here. So they searched the apartment and found a package with his name on it. And then Hugh Cameron, who was a friend of Oscar's, said that Oscar had pawned a brooch. And then he is the one that started the whole pimp accusation against him. So the police went, got the brooch, and Helen Lambie said that it was the wrong one. Um, and then the pawnbroker said that it was left there on November 18th of 1908, which was way before the murder. Yes. On December 26th, regardless of all of this, they put out a notice for Oscar's arrest in the newspapers and sent a telegram to New York to have him arrested when he arrived. So Oscar arrived in New York City on January 2nd of 1909 and was arrested by New York police officers. Then on January 13th, 1909, D.I. Piper William Warnock, who was the chief criminal officer of the Glasgow 
Sheriff Court, Helen Lambie, Arthur Adams, and Mary Barrowman left for New York and then arrived on the 25th. And on the voyage, the police showed photos of Oscar to everyone that was there. Questionable practice. It's very questionable. I was like, that's just like implanting ideas into people's heads. It is. And that's one of the most interesting things to me about this book is the way that it's like, there's a lot of like practices that like little things that like we know are more modern police mm-hmm. practice, like, like the Miranda rights, like that's something we know has only come about in the past however many decades. Yeah. But something as simple as don't show a picture of someone and be like, was it this guy? Because it's way easier for them to then identify and be like, oh yeah, sure, that's him without like, because you're predisposing them to that image and mm-hmm. giving them that image of that person and it's wild to think that that was an okay i mean obviously yeah. conan doyle comes in and says that's not an okay practice yeah. but yeah also i'm amazed that they put all these people on ships to new york i know because i'm like <laughs> even today i'm like to fly back and forth that's a lot of money and time and like travel but like at the time when you would do like take a boat and they literally took a boat to arrest him and bring him back on yeah. a boat. Like, I'm blown away by all of this. So much investment in getting this poor man into prison. And then this is when I found the first article in the Scranton Papers. Because I decided ah, to check yes, on the yes. Scranton Papers because it was talked about how like popular the crime was. And the front page of the Scranton Republican ran a story titled, Is Charged with Glasgow Murder? And it mentioned how Oscar is trying to fight the extradition order and notes that he's kept in the tombs, which was the colloquial name for the Manhattan Detention Complex. And it also mentions how Oscar's lawyers believed that he was completely innocent and, like, there was no grounds for a case. Mm-hmm. But... Through various methods, Oscar eventually decided to go back to Scotland and place his trust in the justice system of Scotland, not realizing how completely just racist and awful it was at that time. Yeah, I feel bad that he like wanted to prove himself and prove, yeah. and I'm like, no, you should have just shipped right off to San Francisco and yeah. not looked back. <laughs> just run. Yeah, nope. So they got back to Glasgow on February 21st of 1909, and the police got an order to unseal Oscar's luggage, where they found a small hammer, a stained waterproof coat, and hats, but not the hat Mary Barrowman said she saw, and they didn't find a variety of other clothing that people said the watcher was wearing, but they were like, ah, it seems about right. Yeah. Um, (laughs) He ditched all the clothing, his entire wardrobe. Yeah. And then there was this incredibly unjust witness lineup, which they call an identity parade, Mm -hmm. which I found was a fun way of phrasing it. Mm -hmm. Yes. And I've seen those. I think those still exist. Yeah. 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 On February 21st, 1909, this is a quote from page 87. Slater was displayed before witnesses in an identity parade. Standing along the dark-haired, olive-skinned prospect were 11 other men, nine pale-pink Scottish plainclothes policemen, two pale-pink Scottish railway officials. Not every eyewitness could spot the man who had been the watcher outside Miss Gilchrist's home, but those who made an identification chose Slater immediately. And I think that also goes into just, like, you choose 
the other in this situation. And it wasn't like, it was very clearly biased. Yes, there is no, like, it's one of those metaphors I think they use a lot when you talk about like juries now, where it's like a jury of your peers Mm -hmm. is like quite literally stated that way because if you were tried by, by a jury that is entirely different from you, the odds of them having a bias against you is much more likely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then on April 6th, Slater was indicted on the basis of them finding the hammer, raincoat, and one of the hats. And then they were sent right for testing. And this is where a criminology ideology came into play which is a whole theory where people at the time were taking Darwin's theory of evolution and kind of applying it to criminals and trying to find characteristics of criminals and very racist and like anyone who had like maybe a stronger forebrow they would be like oh they're obviously mm-hmm. going to commit crime And so in that way of thinking, Oscar was the perfect person for them to pin the crime on because, one, the police saw him as other already because they were already keeping an eye on his house, trying to get him on charges of keeping a brothel. The police kind of just always had an eye on him because he was different from this, what they considered the standard moral Mm -hmm. Victorian Scotsman. Yes. Yeah, and it's interesting how um, in the book on page 93, that when they're talking about criminology, it says that um, once they had this system of criminology, criminal identity was no longer read, but instead constructed. So it was less about what you could read from a person or the situation. It was mm-hmm. more about what you can tell based on the way that they looked and the way they presented themselves, and that did contribute significantly to these biases, which mm-hmm. was definitely unsettling. I know that it's- reminds me of, I think, because I I remember learning about criminology a lot in college in my English courses and I think a lot of it was we talked about it was Victorian mm-hmm. so it was I believe like Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde was one of our big examples mm-hmm. because in that book it's this like respectable doctor Dr. Jekyll and then Mr. Hyde is like physically like he's squat and he's mm-hmm. hunched and he's got like darker tones and he's hairy and he has all these qualities that seem other or animalistic in a way that they like pin him as looking like a criminal in that way. Yeah. yeah. Very racist and just feels icky. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> icky. And so Oscar's trial. Uh, at 10 a.m. on May 3rd of 1909, the trial began. Oscar was represented by Alexander McClure, John Mayer, and Ewing Spires. And then I was kind of fascinated that they had, like, a trap door that he popped out of during his trial. Yeah, they, like, take him out of the floor like we're in, like, Wicked or something. Yeah. And it's, like, coming out of the stage. Yeah. I meant to look up if they still do that because I'm just curious. I highly doubt it. No, but it's not. The fox does go into all of, like, the ins and outs of, like, the courtroom setup and everything else in the book. On page 105, she states how the case was built entirely on eyewitness testimonies. So the direct quote is, The case against Slater was deeply flawed. The brooch clue had long since broken down, so had the scenario of his supposed flight from justice, nor could the Crown, even after tireless investigation, demonstrate a single link between Oscar Slater and Marion Gilchrist, but the crime was a newspaper sensation, and Helen Lambie testified that she had seen Oscar that night, and she had never thought any differently. 
and identified his coat before it was even taken out as evidence. Hmm. Yeah, that's... uh, Yeah. No. And then Mary Barrowman testified that she was absolutely certain that it was Oscar. Arthur Adams went... It was something kind of that looked like him, but it was too serious of a charge for him to say anything from just a passing glance that he got that night. Um, And then McClure didn't call any witnesses to really go against the main witnesses or ask leading follow-up questions that could have really helped Oscar, such as asking why they pursued the case, even though the brooch clue broke down or how such a small hammer could cause such damage to Marion physically and also told Slater not to testify on his own behalf. The reasoning behind that was mainly because the Victorians were incredibly racist and anti-Semitic at that time. Mm -hmm. So him taking the stand could have put him even more in the spotlight of being like what was considered other and discomfort middle-class society because he didn't fit into a category because he by all accounts he seemed like he was just like a guy who liked to live his life and yes yeah there was a really great quote about this on page 115 um that to post-victorian sensibilities slater's foreignness his jewishness and his intemperate livelihood were disturbing enough but what may have rattled the public even more was that in a period still highly dependent on social signifiers slater was unsettlingly beyond category so it was less about anything bad he did and more that he just didn't fit any of the neat boxes for mm-hmm. social identity that the Victorians loved. Yeah. Yeah. And Anton was chosen as a witness, but because she also didn't fit into any of the boxes because she was an actress and was rumored to be a prostitute, no one really put any credit in what she said. And Margaret Beryl, who was Marion's niece, who Helen Lambie went to that night and declared that the murderer was somebody that Helen knew, wasn't chosen to testify either, which is absolutely bizarre to me. Yeah. And then Lord Advocate Ure, who was the Crown's representation, spoke for two hours and went through all the version of events which weren't really refuted by McClure in his closing statements, who, even though McClure did try to point out inconsistencies and conflicting descriptions and Lambie's changing statements, um, but then Lord Guthrie, the judge, who was pretty fair-minded towards people of his own social class, Mm -hmm. basically just went into his statement to the jury as the judge with very much coded racist language and basically told them to find Slater guilty. Yeah. Yeah. Which is just, uh, it just doesn't make sense. Like a lot of it just does not line up, which is why I think Conan Doyle takes the case. Yeah. Yeah. And so at 6.05 p.m. on the last day, the jury had nine guilty votes, one not guilty, five not proven, which all that together meant that Slater was condemned to hang. And at that point, Slater spoke up about his innocence, but it didn't matter because the trial was over. And he was set to be hanged on May 27th. 
So in the aftermath, there was no criminal appeals court at that time, but the public kind of began to feel guilty after the trial. So there was a whole movement where Ewing Spears wrote to the Secretary of Scotland asking to get rid of the death penalty and provided a petition signed by over 20,000 people, which was wild That's a lot. That's a lot. On May 25th of 1909, Secretary Sinclair commuted the life sentence by after that got approved by King Edward VII. So instead of dying, Oscar was just put lifetime in prison and sentenced to hard labor. During the whole first half of the book that we covered, it goes into crime fiction and talks about Arthur Conan Doyle, who was considered by many a representation of the Victorian era's favorite qualities because there was valor and a thirst for adventure and a love of manly sport. I did save that quote as well. Yeah. I loved that. Yeah. In a the, passion for scientific knowledge yes. and a deep sense of fair play. Mm-hmm. I like it. I like it. Arthur Conan Doyle was born on May 22nd, 1859 to a poor family. His father suffered from severe mental illness, alcoholism, and epilepsy, and his mother held the family together. He was raised as a Roman Catholic, but really didn't have much religion in his life once he grew up. And then he began writing short stories to earn money after training as a medical doctor under Joseph Bell, who is most likely the basis for Sherlock Holmes. And Joseph Bell trained his students to look for symptoms and physical clues rather than just verbal information that patients would give them. And he wanted them to use all of their senses to diagnose people. So he gets involved in the next episode. (laughs) Was there anything that you want to discuss that we didn't cover today? I say that. I know, right? We we were pretty thorough, I think. Yeah, I think that made sense. And from how the book is laid out, you know Oscar is innocent from the very beginning. Yeah, we do know. It's one of those where I wish it would be interesting to be able to see it without, like, to, you know what I mean? Try Mm -hmm. it for yourself to, like, see all the clues and be like, would a logical, rational person who just saw these clues come to this conclusion? And Mm -hmm. obviously the answer is no, but... It is, it is one of those interesting case scenarios of the time and yeah. situation reflecting a lot of it. Yeah. Okay, so we will end here for today. Do you have any final thoughts? Honestly, I thought Oscar was a really, really interesting character, and I'm excited for next episode to get to like talk more about him. I'm, yeah. I'm excited to get Conan Doyle into the mix, and also to get to know Oscar a little bit better, Yeah, because that was my favorite part of the second half of the book, is getting to know him, particularly mm-hmm. through his letters, and getting to see the type of person he is, and I'm excited about that. Yeah. Yeah. So look, stay tuned. Yes. So look forward to that. Yeah. And that will be coming out next week. If you have any questions, comments, suggestions, or anything at all in the meantime, please feel free to email me at aloney at albright.org. That is A-L-O-N-E-Y at albright.org. Or call the library at 570-348-3000. Thank you. Thank you.